This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. For at least a half century, the US educational system has made strenuous efforts to close the opportunity gap between the haves and the have-nots. Head start for low-income children, compensatory education, accountability for low-performing schools, state interventions into school practices, school desegregation, Pell Grants for low-income college students, and many more specific interventions have been directed at the socially and economically disadvantaged. Some progress has been made toward closing the black-white achievement gap and the black-white college enrollment gap, but closing the socioeconomic divide has proven very challenging, especially for the difference between those who come from families with adequate or more than adequate incomes and, and those who are on the edge. So why have not these educational innovations had the impact that has been expected of them? Why is it that inequalities persists despite the efforts of a vast variety of governmental agencies. What is the secret to getting higher success from students who come from less advantaged homes? But there is an exception to the rule that social class determines how well you're going to do in school and whether you're going to go on to college, according to Ilana Horwitz, who tells us in her new book, God, Grades, and Graduation, that children who come from less advantaged backgrounds nonetheless make better progress than sociologists might expect. Dr. Horwitz is an assistant professor of Jewish studies and sociology at Tulane University, and I'm pleased to have Dr. Horwitz with me today on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here. Ilana, in your just-released book, God, Grades, and Graduation, you show that a child from a modest socioeconomic background, if he or she believes in God and engages in religious practices, actually does better in school and is more likely in, to enroll in college than a sociologist would predict based on the child's socioeconomic background. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah. So I think a lot of this comes down to the role of social capital. So one of the main reasons why economically advantaged children fare better academically is because they have a lot of social capital. And what I mean by social capital, and I'm using it here in the way that Robert Putnam uses it, um, in the way that um, Coleman used it, is these social ties that are abundant in sort of middle upper class communities, right? When parents go to college and they are embedded in professional organizations, they are part of uh, institutions where they have a lot of social ties. And those social ties have a ton of benefits that show up throughout the life course in terms of the kinds of trust you develop with people and, and what that buys you. But if you are a kid who is growing up in a working class community with non-college educated parents, you are, as Case and Deaton have shown us, right, living in a profound sense of despair, particularly over the past 20 years. And that social capital, which comes from both having your own sort of two-parent households, but it also comes from the community that you're living in, um, you have a lack of social capital. And so kids are really suffering from that. When you are part of a religious institution, and what I mean by that is you have to both believe and belong those are very central elements of religiosity in the way that I'm describing it. You have access to social capital. Religious institutions are a compens compensatory form of social capital for working class and lower middle class kids that cannot access 
that social capital and those social ties and that trust elsewhere in their life. And that is what gives them a strong academic advantage. Well, this is a very important finding if indeed this is correct. So I have to ask you, how did you find this out? What, what's the data that you use to, uh, to uh, analyze it uh, led to this conclusion? Uh, I think you start with the National Study of Youth and Religion. So tell me a little bit about the National Study of Youth and Religion. Yes. Yeah, so the National Study of Youth and Religion was a project that was run by Chris Smith and Lisa Pierce. Um, Chris is at Notre Dame and Lisa is at University of North Carolina. Um, and so in 2003, they launched this a massive nationally representative study to try to understand what role religion um, plays in the lives of American adolescents. And so they followed 3,290 adolescents who were ages 13 to 17 in the first wave of data collection, that was in 2003. And they followed them over the course of 10 years until 2012. And so over that 10 year period, they surveyed these 3,300 adolescents four times. And they also interviewed about 220 of them on the same longitudinal sort of basis. So every couple of years, they did very extensive interviews with, um, with a sample of the survey participants. So that's very interesting now, but usually uh, people worry about that kind of panel design that you get attrition as you go along. And so you end up with your final sample not being very representative and can you really draw conclusions from that? How, how do you get around that particular problem? Yeah, so one of the biggest things I was concerned about because you are totally correct in the attrition problem is because I was studying college outcomes, we know that students who tend to attrit in these kinds of surveys, who tend to drop out of these kinds of surveys are lower income and also less likely to go to college. So if I wanted to have a representative or at least a more complete data set, I needed to be able to follow what happened to the kids who dropped out of wave one. So you have to really look at everybody who was in that first survey, don't you? I did, exactly. But what I did was that I matched the National Study of Youth and Religion to the National Student Clearinghouse. So the National Student Clearinghouse is a repository of higher education data for about 95% of Americans, right? And it tracks on a semester by semester basis where, you know, any individual attends college, right? You could see, uh, see if they went, let's say a semester of community college and they transferred to a four-year college. It tells you when they graduated, with what degree, did they go on to get um, a master's degree? It's very detailed information. And so I was able to match the original NSYR wave one data with the National Clearinghouse, which is how I was able to make claims about how much education students completed, as well as the selectivity of the school that they attended. Yeah, I've used the National Clearinghouse data, and it is a very valuable data set. But uh, tell our listeners just why they can do this. How do they know all this about all the kids who go to college, all they, all their, when they began, when they finished, how much money they got from the government? What, what, how do they... How do they? So I actually the don't know specifically about how the National Clearinghouse works. I assume that they get reporting from the institutions themselves, but I'm not sort of privy to exactly how. Well, that what works. happens is if you apply to go to college and you ask for money from any source whatsoever, whether it's from your college or whether it's from the federal government or from a state government, you have to fill out a form. And the form that you fill out goes to the National Clearinghouse. 
So the National Clearinghouse gets that directly from the families and the children or the students who actually are applying to go to college. And uh, they, um, they then uh, have made that available to researchers such as you and such as, as myself. Uh, and uh, that's really revolutionized research on uh, college uh, going and who goes to college because uh, this vast data set has been assembled and not only assembled, but made available to researchers. So that's right. Yeah. And one of the other things that I did is in addition to matching it, I matched the data in 2016. The NSYR data collection ended in 2013. And so at the time that NSYR completed data collection, the participants were about 23 to 27 years of age. By the time I matched the data, they were about 20 um seven to 30 and by that point if you were going to complete college you most likely would have and so the fact that i waited an additional couple of years gave me more certainty in the validity of the higher education uh patterns that i was seeing well all of that's really great uh but now how big is this effect that we're talking about so you say okay it it, it there's a payoff for being connected to a religious community and being a true believer. Uh, how big is the, I mean, let's assume that there's two people who are exactly alike. I know you don't have exactly that, but let's assume you have two people who are exactly alike. One's a believer and one's not. How much difference does it make in terms of their high school grades and, and their college going? Great. So I'll, I broke up my sample into four quartiles, and this is just important first explaining the effect because I'm going to be comparing kids of this of comparable socioeconomic status here. So amongst working class kids, if you are a religiously intense kid, I call these abiders, your likelihood or your probability of getting a bachelor's degree is 32%. If you are a non-abider, meaning you do not have these religious, um, intense religious commitments, your probability of completing a BA is 16%. So 16% versus 32%. So for working class kids, the likelihood of earning a BA, you know, is double. Well, that's pretty amazing. But, you know, it, 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 it couldn't there be some other things going on there besides just believing? Um, what other, you know possibilities. Uh, let's say there's a critic of your study here. What, what are the other possibilities that they could identify that actually the kids who go to church have other values and other, uh, other aspects to their life that are, explain this, not just this one thing? Yeah. So you're right. It's not just that they're praying. There's, you have to think about the whole trajectory of one's educational pathway and think about it from the perspective of sort of performance effects and choice effects, right? Performance effects means that to get into college, you need to have good grades in high school. Grades are the strongest predictor of getting into college and persisting through college and actually graduating with a degree. So to understand why it is that working class, for example, religiously intense students do so much better, why they are twice as likely to earn their BA, we actually have to backtrack a fair bit. And so we're gonna backtrack here. I was able to backtrack into their middle and high school years to look at the kinds of GPAs that they got and the kinds of um, report, report cards they were bringing home. And so what I found was that abiders, these religiously intense students, earned much better grades in the middle and high school years. And I suspect that if I tracked them all the way back to elementary school, they would have been getting better grades 
you know, even earlier on. Why is that? Why are they getting better grades? That comes down to them being um, very conscientious and cooperative. Religiously intense students are very conscientious and cooperative. And why is that? Because the kinds of kids that are raised in religiously intense homes, and importantly, the kinds of kids who opt to stay in religion by the time they are teenagers, are also the kinds of kids who are very good at following the rules, who are very good at listening to authority, and who are generally very compliant. Basically, what I'm arguing in my book and what the data show is that the kinds of kids who do well in religious institution and in religious families are also the kinds of kids who do well in our public schools. So there are abiders, and, and why, why did you pick that term? Abiders? Yeah, yeah, you use the term quite a bit in your book, abiders, and uh, it sort of is your, your guiding idea that somehow it's not only the social connectedness, but their, their willingness to, to go along and, and do what's expected is, so, so why do you use this term abiding? Yeah, so I actually borrow that term from Lisa Pierce, who um, did a wonderful analysis of the National Study of Youth and Religion, a latent class analysis to develop different typologies of um, religious profiles. And she actually coined that term and I borrow it from her. Um, but I think it really beautifully captures the sentiment of um, they are kids who are abiding by sort of Christian forms of religious engagement. And I wanna be really clear that the kinds of kids I'm talking about on my, in my book and the kinds of kids who have disadvantage are conservative Christian kids, right? This is mostly a book about how these kids are faring. Um, and so abiders, I think, just kind of captures this. Uh, this. There is this famous, famous uh, hymn, Abide With Me. Oh. Uh, do you know that? Abide I don't with know me. that. Nope. Yes, fall <laughs> fast the evening. Uh, I've forgotten the words, but uh, yeah, there is a famous uh, old traditional hymn that uh, uses that term. So uh, it's, it's a, it, it is sort of has this religious connotation to it, which I think you're trying to, to pick up here. Yes, that's quite apt. Um, so you also look, however, at atheists, the other uh, side of the spectrum, so to speak, and you find that they're surprisingly similar. Yeah. So atheists are also doing very well in terms of their grades, and they do so for very different reasons. And what this means, and I'll tell you what those reasons are, is that our schools, that there are basically two ways to do well in school. The first way is the way that these abiders are doing well in school, right? They are extrinsically motivated to please God. And in their extrinsic motivation to please God and sort of do good in God's eyes, they behave in very conscientious and cooperative ways. And our schools reward the kinds of kids who are rule followers, right? If you are a teacher of 30 rambunctious um, kids, you are going to subconsciously reward the kinds of kids who are just sitting there and following the rules and doing what's being told. They may not be the smartest kids in the room. They may not be the best critical thinkers or the most creative, but they actually do what you ask them to do and it makes your job easier. But there's a second way to do good in school. And that is by being actually intrinsically motivated to learn and to be curious and to be autonomously driven by that curiosity. And that's what atheists are. Atheists aren't doing well in school because they don't believe in God. Atheists do well in school because they are the kinds of kids who are willing to say in adolescence that they don't believe in God. That is a very unpopular view in America. So if you are the kind of kid who as an adolescent is willing to say that God doesn't exist, you are also sort of nonconformist and 
already thinking critically about the world. And those are the kinds of kids who in interviews were like reading Nietzsche and Plato and thinking about things that your average teenager isn't thinking about. And so they're not very well behaved, but they're very curious. And that also gives them an academic advantage. All right, so there's many pathways out there, but um, how, how sizable are these groups? I mean, what percentage of the total student population at age 14 or whatever age we're talking about here are classified as abiders and how many are classified as atheists? Are we talking about a lot of people here? Mm-hmm. We actually- group, yeah. Yeah, we actually are. I estimate based on the data, now the data were collected, as I mentioned in 2003, and we know that there has been in general, a religious decline in America. But importantly, the data show that the religious decline that's happened over the past 20 years is really amongst the sort of um, religious moderates and people who are low on the religious scale. People who are intensely religious, sort of like um, conservative Christians, they have stayed intensely religious over the past 20 years, and that number hasn't budged. And so I, the data suggests to me that about a quarter of teens growing up in America are growing up with intensely religious commitments. And I check that assumption using a very recent study of Pew, uh, specifically of teens and their parents, and that trend seems to be consistent. So I estimate that a quarter, maybe one-fifth of students across the country, you know, when you look holistically, uh, are growing up with these intensely religious commitments. So it's 20 to 25%. Now the atheists must be a smaller group. They're a tiny percent. And so it's hard. It was hard for me to make a lot of claims about them. In 2003, only 3% of teenagers and this their parents as well are willing to go on record saying they do not believe in God. That brings up the other finding, which is your abider group does well in getting good grades. They go to college, but they don't go to the fancy colleges. They don't go to the selective colleges. They tend to, given their grades and and given their SAT scores, you would think they would be in a more selective institution than the one that they actually go to. So why do you think that's the case? Why are they sort of underachieving, at least in terms of uh, the school they pick to go to for their BA degree? Yeah, so this was one of the most interesting aspects of my findings. I wouldn't call it underachieving, I'd call it undermatching. Um, Undermatching is basically says that you go to a less selective institution than you could probably get into based on your grades. And so what I found was that this was most prevalent amongst the sort of upper quartile of the income distribution. These are kids who have college educated parents, they're middle upper class kids of the professional class. And they are the kinds of kids who already knew that they were going to go to college, right? When I, um, in my data, I followed the narratives of adolescents and how they unfolded, the kinds of aspirations they had from the time they were adolescents and the kind of self-concepts that they developed. And it was very clear early on that all kids in the middle upper class plan to go to college. But there was this distinct difference where abiders, and especially abider girls, had their self um, had a self concept that was very much prioritized family, um, especially parenthood, altruism, and service to God. Their self concept was not wrapped up in ideas of prestigious careers. And so, when it came time for college, 
they didn't think that going to a selective college was of the utmost importance because they weren't sort of trying to get those really prestigious careers and go on to graduate school and, and whatnot. They wanted to stay close to home because they really prioritize the, the family and the religious environment that they grew up in. And so often they chose the college that was in their hometown or at least that was in their state. And even though they had stellar academic uh, performance and often were in the honor society and had all these extracurricular activities, they were totally content to just go to the school down the street. Your point about women is interesting. So is it especially true that women are abiders? Is, is this, a, is this a, a female characteristic that, that we're talking about here? Abiders are more likely to be women, but there are plenty of men who are also abiders who are also organized around religion. And the data suggests that the effect of, re of religious upbringing is especially important for them. But it's no, it's not the case that all the abiders are women. So one of the clever things you do in your analysis is to compare siblings. Some siblings are, are abiders and some are not. Uh, so uh, does it, and you say it, it, it makes a difference. Is, is, is that true? Did you were you able to look at that? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up. So I actually used two sources of data to write this book. The primary one, as we talked about, is the National Study of Youth and Religion. But the NSYR has some data limitations. For example, there's uh, the, the grades and there are self-report. And it also, the way in which I follow those kids, it doesn't allow me to examine whether the relationship between religiosity and academic success is spurious, right? There could be confounding factors particularly family factors. And when I started this research early on, um, a colleague of mine said, you know, I think what you're observing is really like the kinds of kids who grow up in religious families. Those are also the kinds of families who are going to self-select into, um, into religion and also to be the kinds of parents who sit there with their kids who do and do the homework and to go to the PTA meetings. And so maybe the unobserved family level factors that are so hard to capture in surveys are really just confounding this relationship between religion and educational outcomes. And so what we did was we used the National Study for Adolescent to Adult Health, most commonly known as AdHealth. This is also a longitudinal data set. It is five times bigger than the NSYR. They collect transcript data. And also started in the, it started in the 90s, and they've been following people ever since then. But one of the great things they do is that they look at siblings within the same family. And when you look at siblings within the same family, you can sort of tease out the actual effect of family using models called family fixed effects. So what we do is we look at siblings who have different levels of religiosity, right? Uh, might be one sibling is intensely religious and one is moderately religious. And when we look across, we find that actually, even after we include family fixed effects, a more religious sibling in the same family will still earn better grades and will still go on to complete more years of college education, even 14 years after their religiosity was measured. Well, Ilana, now you are teaching uh, at Tulane and, and your appointment is in uh, Jewish uh, studies and sociology. And in your sample here, or your analysis here, you treat the Jewish students separately outside this analysis. So why did you do that? So most of it came down to data limitations. The, it's, 
incredibly difficult to study Jews. They make up just 2% of the US population. Getting anything close to a nationally representative sample of Jews is very difficult. The NSYR actually oversampled Jews, which gave me some ability to look at them. But in terms of the Jews that they were able to survey, very few of them were, you know, religiously Orthodox. Um, and so I wasn't able to compare Orthodox Jews to conservative Christians, right? That's where I would expect them to look similar. Most of the Jews in the NSYR identified as reform or conservative, right? They were more religiously egalitarian. And so I wasn't able to, to sort of compare intensely religious Jews to intensely religious Christians. But what I was able to do, and I do this also in a separate paper that's forthcoming in the American Sociological Review, is that I looked at um, Jews overall compared to non-Jews. And we found particularly, my co-authors and I, that women raised, and this is particular to women, um, because religion is very gendered, we found that women raised by at least one Jewish parent, and even more so if it's two Jewish parents, go on to complete substantially more years of higher education, but also end up at much more selective colleges than girls raised by non-Jewish parents. And this comes back to this idea of self-concept, which is a really central part of my research and in the book, in that the girls raised by Jewish parents are taught to believe that they can grow up to be doctors and lawyers and politicians and to have prominent careers. And that while they plan to have children, they do their self-concept is not oriented around motherhood and altruism and God in the same way that it is for non-Jewish girls. I have been speaking with Ilana Horowitz, a professor at Tulane University and author of the just released book, God Grades and Graduation, Religions, surprising impact on academic success. Thank you, Dr. Horvitz, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.